While we were all busy learning how to make sourdough in lockdown, or if you were like me, finally caving in and downloading TikTok, Bev Moon was busy knitting yumcha. This article is now on our webpage, so you can go and have a look at this knitted work. What started out as a few dim sim became an ever-growing colourful tapestry of a feast. The exhibition pays homage to Bev's family and educates people about the Chinese poll tax and is currently at the Hawkins Collection in Dunedin. Earlier, I spoke to Bev Moon about how this all came about. In late 2021, when Auckland had the lockdown that kept going, <laughs> um, I just sort of had this idea I wanted to start um, knitting dim sum, like yum cha, like my mum, you know, to make a yum cha type table spread, which my mum uh, used to do. She used to, I used to make dumplings with her as a kid and um, so I knew sort of how to fold them and everything. But I wanted to knit them, um, mainly because I already had lots of wool around the place and it was really hard to get, you know, any other materials because we were locked down. Um, and I don't know, I just kind of like, I've always really knit, I've always loved knitting and it's something that my mother and my grandmother used to do a lot and they taught, mum taught me how to knit when I was quite young. So I kind of wanted to... I guess I just wanted to start making food and then it, I started with the pork buns which because I knew how to knit a sphere so it was kind of that sort of worked out alright and I thought oh that's cool let's see if I can make these other things. So I kind of started knitting this feast and it became bigger and bigger as I, I just tried different dishes and I sort of realised it's kind of like a tri- it was kind of a tribute to my mother and my grandmother because they were Knitting and cooking were two skills that they really excelled at, especially cooking, but um, also knitting. And they're really time-consuming pursuits that both women did and um, day in, day out, and which fed and clothed their, their families. And I sort of wanted to do something that echoed what they did for me as, you know, as a child and everything. And I just kept going with this uh, lockdown uh, knitting and trying to source... It was quite tricky sourcing really good types of wool that I, I wanted to have the sort of translucent um, effect of a dumpling that's been steamed, you know, and so you can sort of see the um, insides of the dumpling. So I wanted to get that effect and just thinking about the types of wool and the tension I needed and um, the sort of how I would do the sort of minced meat texture and things. And so... Quite technical, actually. Yeah, knitting is quite it's quite mathematical. So it's kind of like if you know if you increase the stitches, it's going to be bigger, and if it's you know or whatever, and if you, yeah. So it's kind of like just knowing if you know the basic shapes and the basic kind of principles behind it, and how to sort of make a circle or anything like that. Then, yeah, you can sort of figure it out because there weren't there wasn't an actual you know I didn't want to follow a pattern anyway because mm. it was it was also about my grandmother who. Uh, in China, like the the girls didn't in the village, they didn't go to school, and so she couldn't read or write Chinese or English. But she knitted. She used to knit amazing jerseys for us kids, and just used to know what size to make them. Yeah. And so it was kind of like, yeah, not wanting to use a pattern because they didn't use patterns yeah. to to sort of create. Yeah. And so started in the lockdown and I kept going and the lockdown kept going. And and then I thought, well, I'll just keep making them until March of the following year. So it was about 
I probably did it for about five months or something. But and so I got it photographed then. And and that was to coincide with what would have been your mother's ninetieth yeah. birthday. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. my mum passed away when she was seventy. But I thought, oh, well, this is a really good a good occasion to show it. Yeah. And so I just put it up on Facebook after I got it photographed and I really didn't expect the reaction I got. It was amazing. People kind of really connected to it, I suppose, because everybody eats and, you know, it was sort of, I don't know, maybe it was an unexpected way of... I mean, visually it looks incredible and it is oh, so... It's so sort of striking as well to the eye because, like you say, it is food. Yeah. Everyone... Everyone yeah. loves yum cha and yeah, everybody eats, uh, and it's the red um, base as well. We've got a, f- a photo of it up on our website for our listeners, so you can go there and see the tapestry. What was the hardest dim sum to make? Um, the hardest one, the one that I didn't actually make for the show, but which I've made since, was chicken feet. <laughs> <laughs> so that was kind of you, you know just trying to figure out, or well, how do I do it without making the <laughs> The foot looked too lumpy and, you know, and then when I looked online at Chicken Feet, they're pretty misshapen anyway. Yeah. So it's like <laughs> they're all quite goes. unique. Yeah, yeah, they're yeah. all quite different. So I did, I, so there's no Chicken Feet in the actual exhibition that's touring, but I have made Chicken Feet since and, I, and I'm actually quite proud of my Chicken Feet. Do <laughs> you get the colour right? Are we talking about um, the brown, yeah. <laughs> the brown ones? Well, that's the, that is the other thing. It's very hard, like, especially online, you know, during the lockdown and you'd look at your monitor and you think, oh, that sort of looks like pastry, yeah. <laughs> pastry colour, or that's a little bit like deep fried wonton colour, <laughs> but it was never quite right. What has been the reaction and reception to Fortune uh, and that history? Do, do you think a lot of people they knew were, about that, knew about the history, or, or do you no. feel like they were learning about yeah, it for the first time? Definitely, and that was that was my kind of aim. Really, was to kind of we were saying something that's outwardly appealing you think you think might be quite humorous or light but if you actually read further into the the label and the the story then you sort of realize actually the story behind it you know potentially can be quite serious or quite sad so and i call it um serious by stealth so it's kind of reeling people in with this oh nice shiny thing and then and then, yeah. So I've had a lot of feedback from people saying they never, they never knew about the poll tax, let alone the refugee women. Mm. Um, and so, and that was the aim was to kind of um, not hit people over the head with it, you know, and and just say, oh, we've had such a hard life, and you know, my ancestors, you know, were really badly treated. It was, it was more just to sort of, you know, and by the way, mm. this is, you mm. know, this is what they went through, and yeah. So uh, yeah, so I have had a lot of reaction from people who just had but then again you know like well um New Zealand history has only started to be taught in schools like this year so it's so there's a lot of our own history that we don't know and um what I what is great though is people are ready to hear those stories and those histories. Fortune the exhibition has made its way around a couple of galleries now it's been in Upper Hutt in Waikato, and now it's in Dunedin at the Hocken Collections. Does this one feel different or particularly yeah. special? Yeah, so I think, like, firstly, I just wanted to say, like, if you asked me two years ago, I wouldn't have even dreamed of being exhibiting anywhere, so it's it's just amazing. So to, to have it already at Fitanaki in Upper Hutt and Waikato Museum was incredible. But I always wanted to send the show to Dunedin because... Or and Otago because that's where 
My great-grandfathers on both sides um, settled. You know, they came over in the 1880s. They were just young boys, really. Um, and and it's where my their sons came as well, eventually came to New Zealand and had laundries and gore. And So it was actually going to gore after this. But, yeah, I really wanted it to go to Otago, and um, we had an opening there, and it was really, really special. It was kind of, you could feel when I went down there, the, they just really have a sense of the Chinese, early Chinese settler history there. And, I mean, they've, I'd never heard of um, chop suey patties. Have you heard of those? No, just the, just chop suey. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so that's a Dunedin thing. Oh. And it's basically just deep fried chop suey. Oh. And it, yeah, and yeah. It was just really special. It was really special also because my father's first cousin um, is Jim Ng, Dr. Jim Ng, who is a Chinese historian. He was a GP and he lived in Dunedin for many years. He wrote a four-volume book called Windows on a Chinese Past, which was kind of like the go-to for many years. He wrote that 30 years ago now. So he donated his his early drafts to the Hocken. So that, that was another reason why it was really important to send this um, show to the Hocken because Windows on a Chinese Past really talked about, it was like probably the really the first book that was written in New Zealand about um, Chinese settler history here. Yeah. And and Jim has donated a lot of his material to both the Hocken and Knox College. Um, and that the collection he's donated to the Knox College is has become like a UNESCO memory of the world. Mm. It, it's been awarded that status. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's really significant. Well, aside from being, you know, just something that's amazing to look at and, a, you know, a visual feast, this is your way of telling people and educating yeah. people about the Chinese politics. That's sort of the underlying yeah. uh, message or, or, or it's a way in. Yes. The food is knitted and it, outwardly it looks appealing and it look you know it can be a little bit amusing there's something quite amusing about knitted food <laughs> and um and it's warm and fuzzy and welcoming and you know and it's colorful yeah, yeah colorful and then there's a soundtrack of a busy yum cha restaurant in the exhibition and so you sort of so people sort of come to it from that way but when, if you read the labels and that's um then you'll hear, you'll read more about the poll tax and the reason it's about my mother and my grandmother and why it's called fortune because of the poll tax. Just for context for our listeners, this the poll tax, this is the 1881 Chinese Immigrants yes. Act. And so at the time it was a £10 uh, poll tax imposed on Chinese migrants. That's equivalent to something like close to $1,800 today. And on top of that, there were restrictions on the number yeah. of Chinese people allowed from each ship arriving into New Zealand. So that was one Chinese passenger for every 10 I think it was tons. 10, 10 yeah, tons, of tons of cargo. cargo. But, then in 19, 19, but then in 1896, that changed to 100 pounds and one passenger for yeah. every 200. Yeah, 200 tons of cargo. So they really tried. It was kind of weird because, of course, originally the Otago um, region invited the Chinese over to for the gold, gold rush. Yeah, yeah, in 1865. And then by... 1881, they sort of thought, oh, no, we've had enough, you know, <laughs> let's restrict. And then by 1896, like, let's really restrict. So so because the poll tax, uh, which is equivalent to, I don't know, a lot more than, you know, like it's one estimate said it was worth $20,000, but I think it, was, it would be worth more than that now. Um, and 
we, it, my relatives had to borrow money to come here because we basically came from the villages of Guangdong and borrowed money for, um, from the family to come out to New Zealand. And, and they were, like my grandfathers, great-grandfathers, were only about 12 or 14 years old when they came. Um, and so it was sort of prohibitive um, cost-wise to send girls out. I mean, girls didn't even go to school. So, um, so the boys came out. Then they would work here. Basically, the family clans would look after them. So the other males in, in the family clan would look after them. They would. That we migrated from the goldfields to the laundries, and um, then when my great grandfathers on both sides were old enough, they'd, they'd and saved enough money, they'd go back to China, get married, um, conceive children, come back to New Zealand to to keep working because they had to um, earn money to pay back what they'd borrowed. Um, and of course, they couldn't bring the women or the children out because they would have had to pay the poll tax. So um, there were whole generations. So my great grandmothers on both sides never got to come to New Zealand. Um, and luckily, I'm not too sure about my great grandfather on my mother's side, but on my father's side, he managed to to go home to China in his later years. Mm. Um, so people were separated by for decades. Mm. And then, um, in fact, talking about 1896, there was a census um, where they, where there were 3,771 Chinese men, and oh no, 3,771 3, Chinese people in New Zealand, and only 26 of them were female. Mm. So, um, so you can see there was a major disparity. Yeah, there, yeah. yeah, gender. Yeah. Um, so anyway, later on, my grandfathers came out when they were they were about 12 or 14. They did the same thing. They, you know, they grew up here and then they went back, got married, had kids, so conceived my mum and my dad. And then um, it just happened in 1937 with the Japanese invasion of China um, and then the breakout of World War Two. The New Zealand government um, brought in a temporary... Refugee status. Yeah, sort of yeah. Law, yeah. So for two years, between 1939 and 1941, they allowed 500... Chinese women and children who, who were connected to the men already here to come to New Zealand. They yeah. they had to pay a bond and everything, and it was only supposed to be temporary. But that's how my mother and my grandmother came out. So basically, that's that's the story of fortune, and basically saying that, you know, it's about fortune meaning the double meaning like wealth, but also um, luck. Yeah. And it was partly so they had the fortune to come here, and it cost my dad my granddad a fortune <laughs> to bring them over and also um that the they cost got of, to come over here at all yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and the cost of wool yeah. also it cost me a fortune so <laughs> <laughs> you you've worked in and around art all your life you're currently the Auckland Museum Manager of Human History Collections but you said earlier you two years ago you would have never dreamed of having yeah. an exhibition until now why is that so I guess uh, when I was growing up, and I totally understand, you know, because my parents were from a, a different generation and a different time, and they had really hard lives. Like my mum remembers um, hiding in the rice fields when bombs were being dropped in, in China. So for them, doing anything like art, I mean, I was always into art. I, want, I actually wanted to be a spy or a cartoonist <laughs> when I was growing up. <laughs> But, Two very different jobs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, there's still time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and but I also really wanted to go to art school, mm. and um, that was just something that 
my parents, you know, like they were not interested at all in art. It was about survival. It was yeah. about making no, money. No, making money. You've got to get ahead. You've got to, you know, why don't you study accountancy? Why don't you become a doctor? And it just wasn't me. So um, I I did manage, I mean, I'm, I'm sure they were kind of disappointed, but I did manage to to eke my way into a job um, in galleries and yeah. museums. And I basically have worked there my whole adult life. And it was a way for me to be around art and around stories and history and, and other people creating stuff, even though I didn't have the courage to do it mm. because, um, you know, I basically was told you'll never make a living out of yeah. it. So, um, yeah, it didn't kind of, I never really thought, I'd end up doing it, and um, so it's kind of a dream come true, really. You've talked you've talked about feeling guilt when you did art because yeah. you were quite and you loved drawing growing up. And yeah. as a kid, you drew incessantly. Do you still feel that guilt now? No, no, not at all. I feel like I actually feel you know my my dad has passed away over ten years now. And it almost feels like he's kind of driving it, this, you know, because he was really into the Chinese history. And as kids, we were like, oh, yeah, whatever. You know, we weren't actually that interested. But now, you know, I feel like there's a reason for me doing it. And I do look at what I do as a series of the narrative and the idea and the story is just as important as the visual. I sort of see it as like a bunch of short stories. So they can be read together or they can be read separately. Mm. So, no, I don't feel guilt about it now you have and had 30 years of you know yeah yeah thinking about belt. it yeah, yeah. <laughs> and thinking about it maybe it's now now is the time and also um I was telling you this anecdote that I had a friend who is a self-supporting artist and I remember and just making a living out of it not like not majorly rich or anything but and I just said to them you know do you, did you ever feel guilty about it and they said no you know and they said oh well you know what else am I going to do? You know, like, this is me. And also, um, if I don't do anything with it, it's a bit of a waste, isn't it? And I was just like, oh, yeah. <laughs> You've got a point there. Yeah. So, yeah, so from there it kind of almost gave me permission to, okay, well, maybe I can start making some of my own stuff and see where it goes. That was artist Bev Moon talking to Polina Lau here on Culture 101 and Bev's exhibition Fortune is at the Hocken Collections in Dunedin until the 21st of October.